You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Everywhere we went in those days, they wanted to know, are you Will Chamberlain or are you the Globetrotters? <laughs> those were the only two people that they knew. So by the Knicks winning and being New York, we added a lot of glamour to the NBA. NBA Hall of Famer Walt Frazier. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. As the 1960s drew to a close, New York City enjoyed an unusual sports trifecta. In January of 1969, the New York Jets won Super Bowl III. In the summer of 69, the amazing Mets rolled to victory after victory, and they won the 1969 World Series. And then the 1969-70 New York Knicks dominated the NBA. They had an 18-game winning streak at one point, and they won the NBA title in the spring of 1970. And one of the key players on that championship team was future Hall of Famer Walt Frazier, nicknamed Clyde. In fact, he's often considered one of the greatest NBA players of all time. In 1988, several years after he'd retired, Walt Frazier wrote a book about that magical 69-70 season. And that's when I had a chance to meet him. So here now from 1988, Walt Clyde Frazier. How did the 69-70 Knicks change the NBA or help change the NBA? At that time, the NBA was not what it is today. It was not... uh... In some ways, it was a bush league. The players made money, but they didn't really promote the league. No one knew about the players. The most famous basketball player was Will Chamberlain. Everywhere we went in those days, they wanted to know, are you Will Chamberlain or are you the Globetrotters? <laughs> those were the only two people that they knew. So by the Knicks winning and being New York, we added a lot of glamour to the NBA. And the team that we beat, the Lakers, being on the West Coast, also added glamour to the league. And uh, the style of play that the Knicks used in uh, the teamwork and the hitting open man and being a very intelligent team sort of captured the nature, nation's uh, imagination about pro basketball. Everything just fell in place for you that year, didn't it? Yeah, whenever you go all the way, it has to be a lot of luck involved. No one got injured except for Reed and in the playoffs, which made this a very magical season because of the way that it, it ended up. But, yes, everything fell in place. We won 18 straight games, which was at that time an NBA record. And uh, we had some incredible games where it looked like we were out of it. We pulled them out. So it was a fantastic season and a magic season. What does it feel like to be in the 19th game when you know you've got 18 straight wins behind you? Well, (laughs) it's always the thing of of, uh, losing. Do you hang this on pressure? Every, yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you hang on every basket? Oh, please go in! Please go in! Well, not only that, the buildup. I mean, you start to dress the same way, you do the same mannerism, because then you develop all these superstitions that you don't want to do something you didn't do the prior game to break the streak. So there's a constant pressure on it, and even though the players themselves don't discuss it, the fans and the press are constantly talking about it. So you must be aware of it. Is it tougher to be to try to keep a winning streak going or to break a losing streak? I would think keeping a, a winning streak going because uh, you know sooner or later you got to lose. Like when you're on a losing streak, you know sooner or later you must win. <laughs> so, or at least Miami hopes so. <laughs> yeah, right. 
And so there's a little less pressure when you're losing because you know, well, we can't be this bad. Sooner or later, the shots will start going. But when you're winning, you start escaping. Balls are going in, and you say, oh, man, we were lucky to win this game. When will it end? Now, when you were playing, there were, uh, in, say, 69-70, there were, what, 300 players in the league, something like that? And now there's, what, 700 or 750? What was I reading the other day? Something like that. Has the game become diluted? I think so. I I did not like when they expanded for two teams this season and two teams the next season because I thought they had a very viable, strong product right now. And why tamper with it? Like they say, if it ain't broke, don't mess with it. (laughs) So by adding two teams and then two teams the following year, I think they're getting greedy now because the franchises are worth 30, 32 million. So I think the NBA is looking at the dollars instead of, keeping the product strong and not watering it down like they've done. You know, the last three days, this has been my basketball week, in the last three days I've had John Feinstein, Dick Vitale, and now you in. And I, so I've, I've really become the expert the last couple of days. But Feinstein and Vitale both said something I found interesting, that there's a big difference between college basketball and the NBA. And, and Feinstein made the point that, that in college basketball, it's basically a coach's game. And in the NBA, it's basically a player's game. Would you agree with that? Not really. I think in college basketball, the coaches think they are the game <laughs> because they can dominate. You see that in college, they threaten to take your meal ticket. So they have more control over the guys. In the pros, the guys are making more money than the coach, so the coach is not a factor in, in controlling you. But, again, the coach is very, very uh, important, and in, in, in I think more so than college but because – in the pros, you have 12 guys that were formal superstars in college. So now you can only play five, so six, seven guys have to sit down. So now you have all these egos, super egos to deal with. And that's where a pro coach's job is, is really much different than a college coach. I don't envy Pat Riley or Chuck Daly or somebody like that, their job. Yeah, you've got to be a psychologist and know how to pump guys up and, and get them fired up consistently over 82-game period without letting your ego become bruised in the situation. So a lot of coaches that, that lose, that's their problem, that the players are not motivated. They turn the players off because they think, I mean, and the players think they're seeking too much attention for themselves. Now, you went to Southern Illinois University. I graduated from the University of Illinois, so, uh, so I know the SIU. Uh, 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 Saluki. That's right. Okay. <laughs> How did you wind up at SIU? Well, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and I had a friend that was working with a religious organization that knew some people there. And he asked me if I would like to go up to visit my senior year in high school. And I said, sure. I went up, and I'd never heard of them. They'd never heard of me, but... <laughs> I liked the situation there. It was a small college, but, you know, they had 25,000 students. So I saw an an excellent opportunity to get a good education as well as play some competition in a northern school, in a northern environment, which I wanted. So it was sort of a serendipitous situation for both of us. Do you think college athletes get enough education, or are they, or do uh, we, we just heard a story yesterday that there was a $2 million study made that concluded that, by golly, student-athletes do spend more time on athletics than academics. Well, I could have saved them $2 million. <laughs> If they had asked me, I could have told them that. I mean, it's a joke when I read about they, they stress the student-athlete. You know, the colleges now, everyone is interested in money. And what brings in the most money for the college? The football program, the basketball program. So these guys are put under a lot of pressure 
to perform. So the coaches really don't care about the classroom because if I'm a coach, they don't look at how many guys I graduate. They look at how many games I win. <laughs> so that's the bottom line. So that's what I'm concerned with is getting these guys out on the court and practicing. So I definitely think uh, it's a sham when the colleges say that they're interested in how many guys graduate. They're not. They're, they're interested in the bottom line. Even Notre Dame, you look at a guy like Jerry Faust, who had all the qualities. He was concerned about his, his athletes, and he was a religious guy. What his problem was that he didn't win enough games, so he had to go. And, and, and in every college situation, that's the name of the game. If colleges are basically the NBA's minor leagues, shouldn't the players just be paid a straight salary? Why play all the footsie under the table? Just pay them money and let them play. No question about it. When I was a, a, a freshman in college, they had what they call laundry money. They would give players $15 per month. And in those days, that was a lot of money. So I think this is the scenario that they should have today. So maybe it's 3000 today to take care of the guys' uh, expenses or whatever. But I definitely feel that they should be paid something. After this short break, Clyde Frazier on the pain of being traded. Now back to my 1988 interview with Walt Frazier. I know it always hurts a player in the NBA or any professional league to be traded, but did it hurt especially for you when you were traded to Cleveland? Yeah, it was devastating. Uh, not so much from the trade, but how it happened. Uh, you know, I'm a very practical person. I saw Wilt Chamberlain traded, <laughs> Oscar Robertson. I saw all of these guys traded, and I knew it could happen to me. But when I was traded, it was my teammate that traded me, Willis Reed, and he never told me. I found out from my agent that I was traded, and that's, that made it hurt more <clears throat> because you play 10 years with the guy, so you feel that you know, you're part of the family. So if there's something that he had to tell you, and Willis was that type of guy, he always told you up front. So I was very disappointed in that respect that he didn't tell me himself that he traded me. Maybe he, was just, maybe, maybe he thought he, you would be too hurt if he told you himself? Well, I think I, that would have eased the pain because I could accept it more coming from him than, like I say, the way it happened, it looked like I was kicked out. <laughs> I had to find out from someone else, and he never really told me why he traded me. See, I can respect a man if, he's, if he came to me and said, hey, Clyde, you can't play anymore. <laughs> you know, so I'm trading you. I could accept that. But not to tell me why he traded me, you know, really upset me. What's the first thing to go in a basketball player? Is it your knees, your legs? They say it's the legs, but I think it's the mind. I'm a player that I think the mental preparation is the key to the game. So I knew I was ready to retire when I could no longer get psyched up during the game. My thing was when a player scored on me, that's how I got into the game because I didn't like for people to score on me, so i get fired up. So when guys started to score on me, I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel that the chill bumps. Like doing the national anthem before they finish, I have these chills all over my body where I'm ready to go once they finish. And that feeling eluded me. I didn't have it anymore, so I knew it was time to go. But it was not my legs. It was just my mind. I just couldn't get psyched up anymore to play the game. It became just another job? 
Right. It became a job, whereas before it was fun. <laughs> it was drudgery to go to practice. It was drudgery to do the games. I dreaded going on the road. So all of the things that I had loved and enjoyed about basketball now became a chore. And like you said, it became work. I know for a lot of players, when, when they start playing in junior high school and they go through high school, they go college scholarship, go right into the NBA, and they're done by age 30, but they've never done anything all their lives except basketball or football or baseball, whatever it is they happen to be involved in. What do you, how do you make that transition into private life? <clears throat> Unfortunately, many of them don't, and it's a sad situation. When I look at where I am and where I've come from, I know I'm very blessed and I thank God that people still remember me. I'm able to promote a book I haven't played in 10 years. And like many of those guys, I did not graduate from college. But what I did do was I saw that I could not play, and I realized that I could not play basketball forever. So I was fortunate enough to play 12 years, and I don't have all the money that I made, but I have enough to be comfortable for me. And too many of the players don't do that you know they go through the life of the glamour and they blow their money so now there's nothing to fall back on they don't have the money or any other occupation that they can go right into and this is why they fall prey and susceptible to drugs and alcohol because they try to live in the past of when they were great and fantastic and now no one knows them so i found that the thing that you must control the most is your ego you know, to be able to walk outside and no one, hey, that's Walt Frazier. And they go, Walt who? <laughs> you know, if you can get over that aspect of it, then you can make it. But most guys can't. Do you ever stand in an airport and some kid yes, it's Willis Reed. Yeah, or Phil Chenier. <laughs> you know, but that's the way life goes. I mean, like I say, everyone has happened to guys before me, and it'll happen to Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan. It'll happen to everybody. Kareem is happening to him now. He'll have to adjust. So all of the, everyone has to go through it. And, and I, I credit my family a lot, the things that my mother instilled in me as a youngster with my adjustment because you learn to give and take and you learn to motivate and prepare for the future and realize that nothing goes on forever. But you also know that I can succeed at anything that I want to if I work hard at it. Like I was a great basketball player. If I apply myself, I can be good at something else. And that's the way I approached it. And so far it's working that way. Now you're doing what with, with the Knicks now on the broadcast side? I do more of a pregame show where I give my expertise about what might happen. Normally, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you must be an expert then because nobody, nobody's predictions come true. Right, so at halftime, I go over the highlights, the things that I talked about, and then I do a postgame show. But I'm also fortunate enough that I work for two teams. I also do road games for the Atlanta Hawks, right. which uh, – I, on that, I do the color, so I have a lot more time to talk and, and, and give my ideas about the game. So it's sort of a new learning experience and another challenge, and I'm very excited about it. That's good that you're still involved in the game that was so much a part of your life. Yeah, but there was a time when I retired uh, that I wasn't. Uh, my first two years out of basketball were very frustrating. Again, what do you do? I mean, this is something I've done since grade school. And now what, what do I do? And I was in that transition about what to do. I tried being an agent, and I saw there was no future in that. <laughs> so I went back to New York. I worked a lot of different jobs, but just using them as stepping stones until I got to something that I really liked. And now I think 
the broadcasting aspect of it, I'll try to parlay that into a second career. Just for those who don't remember, how'd you become Clyde? Clyde is my fashion image. Uh, from the way my style wearing the wide brim hats, if most people saw the movie Bunny and Clyde, uh, that's the Clyde that I'm named after because he wore the hats and I wore the, the double-breasted suits and I had a Rolls Royce. And You still have the car, don't you? Yes. Yeah, I still have the furs, but they don't mean the same. Uh, as people, I found as I got older, things changed in my life. From 21 to 27 years of age, I was very materialistic. I would never go anywhere if I didn't have the rose. I never went anywhere if I wasn't dressed to the T. You know, and I was always flaunting what I had. I found at 30 years old that ah, these things are nice, and it's important to be nice, but it's more, you know, important to be a nice person as well. So my views changed and trying to give something back to other people. And then at 35, I, I was no longer a receiver. I was more of a giver. And my life started to change and go in a different direction. I no longer seek the limelight. I wasn't out every night in all the bars and clubs in New York City. And then at age 40, I really see how and why they say life begins at 40. Because once you reach 40, you've gone through all the traumas and situations of life. And if you have any sense at all, you're ready to live the rest of your life. I mean, you've lost your money in different investments, and you've <laughs> gone down this road with the wrong type people. So now you have that experience, and that's the stage that I am now. So uh, my main thing that I do a lot today is work with kids. My background is I have seven sisters and one brother. I'm the oldest. So I often tell people when you grow up in that situation, you either like kids or you hate them. <laughs> So fortunately, I like kids, and kids were always instrumental during my career. I can recall times, uh, poor games that I had in Madison Square Garden. I would come out of, out of the game about an hour later. There would be 20, 30 kids waiting for me to say, hey, Clyde, you're still the best. You know, you'll get them the next game. So now that I'm in a position to be a role model, I, you know, I must give something back. So frequently I go into colleges and uh, high school, grade schools, talking about the importance of education, say no to drugs, and, you know, just get your life together. You can be whatever you want to be if you dedicate yourself and work hard. Walt Frazier is 76 now, but he can still be heard doing color commentary for the New York Knicks. And you can find easy Amazon links to Walt Frazier's book at our website, HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure and listen to my interview with the great Wilt Chamberlain. Think about being a boy of 14 years of age and seven foot tall. It was frustrating and very at time embarrassing for me as people pointed and gawked and you know, looked at me as a freak. Thank God for the day when you see a tall guy, they, they, they say, wow, he must be an athlete, basketball player. Ooh, dollar bills. And my conversation with Dick Vitale. You know, I've done fairly well in life, Bill. Think of her, a guy that has no talent, has no looks, has nothing going for him. Yet it shows in America. If a Dick Vitale can make it, anyone can. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms, including Amazon Music, Audible, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, and many others. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, one of the longest-serving U.S. Senators of all time, my 2004 conversation with West Virginia Democrat Robert Byrd. This is a secretive administration. It does not trust the Congress. It does not trust the people. It is an administration 
that looks upon the Congress with contempt. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. 